0: One of the things that anxiety does naturally is it works with other emotions because it needs to, to help you get your stuff done. And some of those emotions are negative, if you want to think of them that way, the allegedly negative emotions. But we and don't so, because
1: we've unvalenced them.
0: Yes, we've totally <laughs> unvalenced the emotions and we'll never valence them again. That for many people, the experience of anxiety is sort of like an emotion pileup. So, They are not wrong to think of anxiety as a painful emotion because there's a lot happening there. And so part of what I do in the book is I take nine other emotions that normally show up with anxiety and help people work with them individually and understand when they're together what they're
1: doing. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, How can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today my guest is Carla McLaren, award-winning author, social science researcher, and empathy pioneer. Carla is the founder and CEO of Emotion Dynamics, developer of the Empathy Academy Online learning site, her applied work, Dynamic Emotional Integration, also known as DEI, is a trailblazing approach to emotions and empathy that reveals the genius and the healing power within the emotional realm. Her work focuses on a grand unified theory of emotions. That might sound big, but it's actually very practical. In this interview, we explore what is an emotion what is the genius that each one contains and how can we access it? How can we work with our emotions and find the middle way between expression and repression? We talk about Carla's latest book, Embracing Anxiety. The fact that anxiety is not a problem, it's your friend. We talk about what it means to down-regulate and upregulate emotions, how to do it and why you'd want to. We explore different approaches to working with anxiety, and how some of us are task-oriented and others are deadline-oriented, what it means and how to deal with anxiety if you're one way or the other. We get into a couple of mindfulness practices that help us understand and use our emotions more intelligently, including something Carla calls conscious complaining. We also talk about a practice she describes as resourcing. Carla explores how anxiety works with some of our other emotions, how to understand that, how to use that, It's not an exaggeration to say that Carla's book, the language of emotions changed my life. I found it not long after it was published back in 2010. And it helped me to think about emotions in some new and empowering ways. We explore some of those concepts in this interview, and I highly recommend her work. You can learn more about Carla and her work at carlamclaren.com, or you can also visit empathyacademy.org. Carla is the creator of something called Emotional Dynamics. She has taught at venues such as the University of San Francisco, Esalen, Naropa, Kripalu Center, Hollyhock Learning Center, and the Association for Humanistic Psychology. She's also been a prison arts educator with the William James Foundation, where she's used singing, drumming, and drama to help men in maximum security prisons explore and heal long-held emotional traumas. Emotion isn't something that's very well understood by our society, and it can be easy to think that this might be an airy-fairy discussion of new age concepts and things like that. But part of what I love about Carla's work is it is so practical and eminently useful. I hope that you enjoy this interview with my new friend, Carla McLaren, and that you find some things in it that you're able to apply to use our minds more intelligently. Carla, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Thank you so much for having me here.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Carla, will you tell me, please, what is life about?
0: It is about figuring out what life is about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very tautological.
0: It's very tautological. (laughs) Because once you figure it out, then there's more to figure out, Mm. right? Those of us who write books, you're like, that's the book. That was it. I've done it. It's figured out. And then you're like, oh my gosh, there's another book I need to write.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Then readers start reading yes. <laughs> and they point out all the things you got wrong or all the things you left out, right? Why,
0: yes. Yeah. yes.
1: Now, when when somebody asks you who you are and what you do, how do you typically answer that question or how do you like to?
0: I generally say that I'm a researcher and a writer. And that I think I lead with researcher because author tends to make people feel, unless they're an author themselves, that they could never be that thing, and I find it's it's distancing. So I say researcher, which is a little distancing, but it it opens up a better conversation.
1: Yeah, if they ask, well, what do you research? How do you then respond?
0: Emotions, empathy, and like social social life, social structures.
1: Oh, this is one of my favorite topics because oh, you know I use this as a, an example uh, sometimes where. And I don't know that this is true because I haven't, you know, gone and done this research firsthand myself, but, you know, I've heard that the Hawaiians had like 40 words for different types of rain and you know, that the Inuit have, you know, the similar, like 30, 40 different types of names for snow. And when I hear that and, you know, I heard, well, why, why is that so? Because it's important for their survival. Right. It's going to matter what kind of rain is falling or is likely to come. If you're going to cross from this island to that, or if you're going to cover this span of land to know what you're going to come up against, you know, whether it's something you're going to fall through or get stuck in, it matters to whether we survive. And, and what's interesting to me is that as far as I can tell, emotion is so important to our survival, but we understand so little about it. (laughs) Right. And obviously you devoted like four decades or so to your life around this. But where's your starting point? I mean, maybe where's the starting point of how you even got into this? And, and, and then maybe we can follow that thread to where it's led you to today. No, nothing more than four decades. in <laughs>
0: Nothing more than four decades. All right. Well, it's kind of a sad story to begin with, because it began when I was very little and uh, experiencing childhood abuse. And mm. this was fortunately, I guess, at the hands of a neighbor. Uh, So I had a, a relatively safe space in my home, but the outside world was not safe. And for me, and a lot of people who are abused when they're very little, it turns up their empathy as a survival skill, right? So you need to be able to figure people's stuff out as quickly as possible and make, you know, your decisions as quickly as possible to sort of moderate how much you're going to be hurt that day or not, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's not a good start. You know, it's, it, was with, it was with animals and deer in the forest. No, it wasn't. It was, yeah, it it was, was a survival, survival tactic. Yeah. yeah, it was a yeah. survival tactic. And so I ended up being, not having known that I, how I turned my empathy so high, I didn't have control over it. Because I didn't remember turning it on, it wasn't like I'm going to make this decision and become hyper empathic. It was you got to figure stuff out, and it's it's an emergency. So I ended up being very, very, very sensitive to people's emotions and their intentions, and social space, and how people behaved with each other, and what their signals were. Right, the whole thing. And so this. 40, 50 year journey has been understanding all of that, which is why I talk about myself as a researcher first. <laughs> because I was a researcher then, right? I was yeah. figuring I was things figuring out. out. Yeah. I was figuring out how to survive in this weird world.
1: Yeah. And one thing I read on your website in a blog post you wrote is about the fact that some people tend to associate or believe that highly. Developed empathic skills are actually psychic. Some people think that because it's so unusual. But will you will you talk for just a moment about what like why is that that it's misconstrued and and what is it really? What is empathy? What does it mean? How can we do it?
0: It really does look like a psychic skill, and I think a lot of that. I mean, we could go on and on, but because emotions are in the shadow, and we don't have a lot of words to experience emotions and understand them. If someone can read emotions, it looks exactly like a psychic skill, right? Because we're all hiding our emotions from ourselves and we think we're hiding them from others. Nope. <laughs> Many <laughs> people can read them. And, and for someone like me who learned to read so much of the social world, you know, I could see things that, that did look what, you know, it looked paranormal, the extent to which I could pick things up.
1: What's an example of that, by the way?
0: I could tell well, certainly you can tell what people's relationships are, right? Especially if they're trying to hide it no. and you know, the happiest couple in town and you're like, No Mm -mm. No, that's not how that goes. And I could tell people's relationships with their parents. I could tell, especially if they had been abused in the way that I was, I could tell it about what age by the behaviors that they had and how their emotions were working. So I was creating all of these, what I understood later, to be more sociological understandings. I was understanding structure. But because I didn't have that language, I thought I was seeing things psychically.
1: Some people say that emotion, you know, so while many people seem to have very little understanding of emotion, other people seem to want to reduce it to something very basic, right? Like some people will say, well, there's only four basic emotions, (laughs) right? What's your view on, you know, how many, how many are there? But I also, and I'm stacking questions here because maybe this actually makes sense before that, which is what the heck is an emotion? Why do we have them?
0: everyone's got a different answer. And that's why it's so hard to talk about them. I was looking at one book about emotions and they talked about emotions and literally you couldn't even understand the sentences. The sentences were, you know, emotions or blah, 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 blah. Like, like, because
1: it was like so new agey or so scientific or what?
0: It, well, both are bad, but it was <laughs> so scientific, you know, and, and it, it was clear that the person didn't know what emotions were, but they just thought, I need to put sentences here. (laughs) I just need to throw some words on the page. But what I've understood from Antonio Damasio is that emotions are, and this is a big old mouthful, they're action requiring neurological programs. And that really helped me. Now, I've, I've moved away from that a little bit, but basically what I'm seeing emotions as now, as they are the underlayment of everything we do. Emotions work much, much more quickly than thoughts do, and they're much older than thoughts, they're older than language, they're older than humanity. So they have a basic function underneath all of our thoughts, our ideas, our behaviors, our wishes, everything we do, everything we think of doing. An emotion is there first. And so... I work with a uh, 17 basic emotions, and I try not to make it too difficult. But there's thousands of emotions because every culture has their own understanding of emotions and different emotions, and each of us feels emotions in an entirely unique way. So we could have we could have Brian's anger and Carla's anger and somebody else's anger, and it'd be a different shade of anger because it's Based on how we learned to work with the emotion, how we learned to understand the emotion, what our family told us about that emotion, what our culture told us about that emotion, or even if we have that emotion.
1: Yeah, that makes sense to me. And when I first read your book, The Language of Emotion, which I think you published in 2010, is that right? Yes, yes. And so by then you'd already been researching this and living this for your whole life. And, yes. and that really helped open up something for me as it related to emotion, which is that there's genius in every emotion. Not mm-hmm. like, because what I would find in my life up to then, and it, not that I've totally mastered this yet, but I feel like I have much more awareness and mastery over my own emotions, is that I used to think of my emotions like weather. Like sometimes I'd wake up, I'd look out the window, it was sunny, that's easy to enjoy right? Other times it's stormy, it's cold, it's dark. And, you know, in those moments, I would do something to shift my emotion, but it often wasn't healthy. You know, it was a long binge of video games. It was eating food that felt good when I, while I was eating it, you know, or other things, work, gambling, pornography, you know, anything to not feel those particular emotions. And what I started to get from your work was, hey, look, every one of these emotions, it has a, a message. There's a reason Right. And that wasn't something that had ever occurred to me. Nobody ever taught me that. And so it was like, oh, that's one hurts. I'd rather not feel it. I'll just do this instead. Right. <laughs> so you talk about there's seventeen. And my understanding is that every one of these, they basically group into families, I think you say. Yes. yes. Right. So that's maybe where it's a little bit reductionistic, not simplistic. But maybe if you would just talk for a moment broadly about what are these families and what's the genius that each holds.
0: Well, the reason I got to these four families, which are the family, anger family, fear family, sadness family, happiness family, is a joke. Because a lot of people send me things about emotions to see if they can make me angry. And it's pretty easy to make me angry (laughs) when you talk about emotions. I was like, oh, what the hell are we looking at now? But this one was saying there's only four human emotions. And I thought, oh, let me just see what this is, right? So, I went and looked at it and it was that anger, fear, sadness, and happiness were the only human emotions because they were the only ones that were shared through facial expression of emotion across the planet, right? But facial expression of emotion is a terrible way to understand emotion because very few people will smile or, or like like people don't frown when they're angry. A lot of emotion work that people do is pretending they're not feeling the emotion that they're feeling. Right. So if you're looking for frowns, to tell you people are angry, you're going to get in trouble because that's not what people are going to do. You know, very few people do that. So this understanding that there's only four human emotions, it made sense from that, from that viewpoint because human emotions do not show up reliably on the face. It's a very bad way to start looking for them. But then I just sat there and thought about it, and then I ran to the language of emotions. And I went, oh my word, I've separated these emotions into the families of anger, sadness, fear, and happiness. So so that became sort of an overarching thing. So the anger family is a family of emotions that helps you work with behaviors and boundaries. And all four emotions in that family do it in one way or the other. So it's anger apathy, hatred, and shame and guilt. So all those emotions work with that whole concept of boundaries and behavior. The sadness family is about letting go, rejuvenating, mourning. So there's sadness, grief, Situational depression, which is different than other forms of depression, like major depression or bipolar depression. This is a depression that comes up and there's a situation that you can track to and you can be like, that's why I'm feeling depressed, rather than it being a more serious condition. And then the fourth in the sadness family is the suicidal urge. Which, the rule in dynamic emotional integration, which is my process, also called DEI, when the suicidal urge comes up, the rule is, this human body, me, I am off the table, like I am not a part of this conversation of what needs to get killed, but if we take the suicidal urge and ask it, what needs to end, you know, now, what needs to end completely in order to give you liberation? Then people can do the work with the suicidal urge and not hurt themselves. And it can be a beautiful emotion.
1: That's so powerful because to look again, instead of just feeling this intense pain and thinking, you know, my best choice is just to end my life instead to realize, hey, there's a message like this. Emotion is like uh, almost like the check engine light on my dashboard and it's helping alert me to something. And then if I'm able to understand what is the question or the information that emotion is helping to bring to my awareness and then I can make a more empowered choice, a more intelligent choice. I mean, obviously, that's not only you, like that's life saving potentially. Yes. But I think the difference between suffering through life and really, you know, while every moment won't necessarily be sunshine and rainbows, at least enjoying life or living, having a chance at living a fulfilling life. Like that's, that's brilliant.
0: Yeah. And the suicidal urge, I mean, when you, when you talk to a suicide hotline, they say, what got you here? What's wrong? And no one ever has nothing wrong, right? It's usually a list of 15 things that are sort of unlivable and that the person has become trapped. And utilizing the, the genius inside the suicidal urge, you can actually start listing them and saying, no, this has to end and this has to end and this has to end. And yes, it can be very disorienting. And we understand why people think, well, then it has to be my life that ends. But we find with people who tried to commit suicide and it didn't work, they're like, phew, (laughs) you know, like very few people think I'm gonna kill myself again. There's always a, okay, that I'm glad because that was a momentary decision and I'm glad I wasn't able to go through with it.
1: Yeah. No, that, that was a lesson. I don't know if you ever happened to see that documentary that came out a few years back called the bridge. Yes. And that, if you remember that story about the, one of the survivors, one of the few survivors of people who did jump off the golden gate bridge and didn't manage to end his life. And I I always stayed with me when he said, as soon as I cleared the rail, I realized that every problem in my life was no longer important except one that I had just jumped. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, wow, that is so profound. So, yeah, this, this is powerful. So, okay, so you've, you've introduced us to the anger family and the sadness family. And then you've got a couple more. That-
0: yeah, we have the fear family, which is instincts, intuition, and orienting. And that's fear anxiety, confusion, jealousy, envy, and panic. There's a lot of emotions in that family. It's a big family. And then the final one is the happiness family, which is happiness, contentment, and joy. And the happiness family is about, you know, enjoying things and laughing and looking forward to things. But if you notice of those families, there's only one that people want. And that's the happiness family. And I call it the poor, beleaguered, overused happiness family (laughs) (laughs) that gets slapped on top of everything, right? Because people don't have experience in these other emotions. They don't know how to trust them or work with them.
1: Yeah. Well, that's such a, I think, a beautiful phrase as well about trusting emotion. One of the things that I took away from language of emotion that was really powerful for me was this thing you talk about, about, I think you call it unvalancing emotion. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Will you talk about what that is? Like what does it mean to valence emotion?
0: Well, valencing is something that happens to emotions pretty much everywhere you've ever looked or heard of. And valencing a valence is it's like a, it's like a cloak that you put over something and things that are valenced are opposites. So, an odd and an even number are valenced because a 3 is never going to be even in a two is never going to be odd. They're separate emotions. So people valence emotions as positive and negative, as pleasant and unpleasant, as pro-social and antisocial. And sadly, almost all of the emotions are valenced as negative or antisocial. The if we work with our 17 emotions, only three of them are considered positive, and that's happiness, contentment, and joy. So all of the anger family is negative, all of the fear family is negative, and all of the sadness family is negative. The problem with that, besides that it's wrong, is that if I tell you an emotion is negative, and you regularly feel it, then what might you also feel?
1: That you're negative.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Or you might feel shame right? You might feel ashamed of yourself for feeling a negative emotion. And like you won't like me, that's good because I'm saying something that's terrible. But also, if I tell you an emotion is positive and you rarely feel it, you may also feel shame. You may also... Like what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me that I'm not feeling these emotions. And what I find is that if people think of emotions as positive and and almost everybody does, the entire field of psychology, psychiatry, neurology, all valence emotions. So the places that we go to deal with our emotions are teaching us that there's good ones and bad ones. And I notice that when people think of an emotion as negative, they don't want to work with it. They want to repress it or run with it or, you know, run screaming from it. And if they think of an emotion as positive, they want to go jump on it and get in a headlock and, you know, never let it go. And this very simplistic, picture of emotions that there's good ones and bad ones means that people's emotional skills remain simplistic. And that's really, that's really endangering to people if they literally don't have any skills in 14 of the 17 emotions. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well,
1: we well, say we even have the, whatever the self-awareness or the willingness. And by the way, before I ask this question, this is one thing in my, in my years as a coach that has stopped surprising me. But sometimes when it comes up in a moment, I still get caught off guard, like, oh, my goodness. What surprises me is that many people feel they feel wrong for feeling whatever they're feeling. Yes. Right. And I I think if we allowed ourselves or or others as we were parenting them or or leading them in whatever capacity, we might have the privilege to lead another of making it okay to feel how we feel. And the fine distinction there is that the emotion is true. Right. The emotion is real. The emotion in, in certain circumstances is normal healthy human but then i think where we get caught up is if it's a recurring or it we don't know what it means we don't know what to do with it so let's just say that for a moment we're open to this like oh my goodness there is a genius here in all of these emotions even the ones i don't like and okay but now what do i do with it
0: and that's the difficult thing we Besides, unbalancing emotion is like the most important thing to first step to take. They're all no good, no bad. They're all necessary. They all have a job to do and they all bring us gifts and skills and genius that is, you can't get anyplace else. If you want to learn to set boundaries effectively, you've got to work with anger, right? You've got to. There's no other thing that can do that. And so understanding that each emotion has a specific gift and skill for you, and I I list what they are in the book, and that a way to work with them is to understand how they work and work with them in the way they work. Like a lot of us, when we feel, for instance, fear or anxiety, we would say, well, why am I feeling that? Why am I feeling that? I need to go take a deep cleansing breath or whatever to get out of that emotion. But fear brings you instincts and intuition about the present moment, and anxiety helps you prepare for the future. So if all you know how to do (laughs) is take breaths and try to get out of those emotions, you're not going to have your instincts or your intuition available to you, and you're not going to be able to prepare appropriately for the future. So understanding what those emotions do, now I'm feeling fear, I know it's about instincts and intuition, so let me orient and see what is it that I'm sensing right? And then your fear doesn't need to increase, right? And I don't mean that you want to keep all your emotions at this really soft level because they need to be able to do what they do. But, but now I'm actually working with the emotion rather than trying to run from it, usually to happiness, poor happiness. Happiness yeah. is like, not you again. <laughs> <laughs> and with anxiety, I know it's about the future. So I need to look around and say, what is it that is unfinished? Like, do I need to make plans? What are you telling me? You know, what are you warning me about? And then I'm working with my emotions rather than trying to run from them. And so that's basically the whole process is understand what the emotion does and work with it in the way that it needs to work.
1: It sounds so easy.
0: I know. It's simple.
1: (laughs) Well, that is part of what I I really appreciate about your work is that you do not only introduce you know the the possibility of the reality that our emotions have messages not they're just not re- something like a reward or a punishment you know for <laughs> things we do or don't do, but instead they're attempting to serve us in some way. It, part of what I really love you know going beyond that is that there's a question, like you're saying now, there's a question that every emotion is prompting us to ask or maybe a few different questions. And when we pause long enough you know, to, to become aware of that. And there is a self-awareness. Like I, I'm sure you've seen this. How many people don't seem to know what they're feeling, right? That there's like a complete, it's not just maybe it's of course related to a lack of vocabulary, but it's also, I think it, it seems to be a lack of, of general awareness. What, what's your experience with people who just seem like they'll either say, Oh, I don't have emotion or I don't know what it is.
0: Yeah. I think going back to that, ridiculous there's only four human emotions thing uh-huh. is really helpful because people can figure out if they're happy sad angry or afraid right so just start at the four and then they can sort of dial down and i also have an, an emotional vocabulary list on my site so you can actually be like am i amused am i anxious and you know like to actually start identifying and locating yourself on this map of emotions you yeah. know
1: that's useful. And, and I love that too, where you talk about the nuances or the levels that our emotions have, where it's not, you know, if we're angry, sometimes we're raging and sometimes we're a little peeved, yeah. <laughs> right? So just understanding, okay, it's still in the anger family and it's still prompting me to look in a certain area of my life or ask a certain type of question, but being aware that there's an intensity, which makes sense, right? Because sometimes I think about emotion a little bit like light, that it's present and it's either really bright, it's really strong, or it could be pretty dim but we can see okay which one which light is shining or which emotion is here in this moment and and I thought that what you what the way you've articulated these with these levels was also very very insightful
0: it's been very helpful for me because i think most of us would know anger when it's really really big or fear or you know any emotion when it's really quite big but most of us don't have skills for them when they're, when they're intense and they're, you know, larger than life. And so if that's all that we can identify, then of course we're going to think of most emotions as negative because they're, at that point, until we have skills, that emotion might be out of control. Not that the emotion is out of control, it has a reason for being there, but we can't control ourselves around that emotion. And so when people say, you know, no, anxiety is terrible. There's no reason to embrace anxiety. Anxiety is just terrible. I, was yeah, like, I, just need I, a, I just need a
1: pill. You. I just need some yeah, kind of prescription.
0: I need five pills. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I mean, I just lean into that. Yes, it certainly can be. And that is not anxiety's fault. That is not the nature of anxiety. But if all we know is anxiety, when you're like running around the house, running into walls, and you just drops, you know, like, where's my... I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. You know, you just lost it. Then, yeah, I could say that emotion and you are having a negative relationship. <laughs> That's not very fun right now. But if you could feel that anxiety when it was lighter, when it was like, did you finish, where's your keys, right? Did you finish the thing? When it's when it's that level, then you can start working with it. And it doesn't have to go up to, you know, anxiety times 12,000 you can work with it if you can identify it at the softer levels
1: well and that makes sense to me too that if there's something and who knows you know where they come from our higher self you know something else but that this emotion is here it's attempting to serve us it's therefore trying to get our attention if we're not hearing it and heeding it at a lower level <laughs> it's going to speak in a in a louder level and until we get you know we get the the message. And and one of the things that I hadn't heard before was you talk about channeling our emotions, right? What does that mean? And how can we do it? Why would we want to?
0: Why would we want to do that? Now, channeling, I'm using the word in its more everyday terminology, which is to channel something like channel water. Like you would create a channel for water and it would go in the direction that it's needing to go. And so, channeling emotion is sort of the middle, it's not sort of, it's the middle path between repression, where we just shut the emotion down, and overexpression, where, for instance, we're angry and we just start swearing
1: or breaking things.
0: (laughs) Or, yeah, or breaking things or, you know, or huffing. And so, channeling would take that middle path of understanding what anger is trying to do and then supporting anger in what it's trying to do. So that would be anger is about what do I value, and it's about boundaries. So if my anger comes up at any level, I would kind of look around and say, all right, so a boundary has been crossed here. What are my options? And if I'm channeling the anger, I may be able to set a boundary very clearly and say, we didn't agree on this, and so I'm going to need to stop right now you know, or whatever it is. Whereas if I suppress it, I would let the person keep going and I would set no boundaries at all and the person would have no concept of what I need. Or if I express it too much, I can set a boundary that's actually pretty cruel. Like, now you're lying to me and gaslighting or whatever it is, <laughs> you know. But, but in both instances where I'm suppressing my anger and not telling the person anything, I'm throwing anger away. And if I'm overexpressing the anger and being cruel to someone, I'm also throwing the anger away. When I can channel it, I can work directly with the anger and access its gifts and skills and its genius, and then go on with a stronger and happier life.
1: Yeah. Again, this is one of those things for me when it's pointed out, it makes so much sense, but it's not necessarily (laughs) obvious. No. No. That, right. Like when an emotion shows up, you can either kind of vomit on somebody as a, you know, yell at them or retreat or whatever form that emotion would have you do and the expression of it. Or like you're saying to repress it, kind of just escape from it, ignore it, deny that it exists or use it. Right. I think that's, there's something really masterful. And part of the challenges, as far as I can tell, there's not a prescriptive list, right? Because we're also unique and we all have our own history. We all have our own worldview. We have our own desires and life path that we're following. So it's not that someone can necessarily say, Hey, when anger shows up for you at a moderate level, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. you should do this. There's not, it's not like a dream interpretation book, <laughs> right? We get to figure out for ourselves. And, and I think that's one of the joys of life, but also the challenges. So what do you, what do you say to people who maybe, because one of the groups of people that I'm really endeavoring to reach and serve is people who are experiencing that their life isn't working how they want it to. And that's pretty broad. And of course that can be in any area. And as we grow and evolve and our lives change, that happens, I think to all of us that we get stuck or we get lost or something that work doesn't work anymore, relationship a career, whatever. But what do you say to somebody who they're going, okay, you know, I've, I've, I'm hearing Carla's message. I really like what I'm hearing. I can read the book. I can ingest the content. I can get the knowledge. But now learning to apply it, to integrate this kind of thing into my life, how do you encourage or invite somebody to go on that journey or add that into their, into their life? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, because I, I would have to say if, if I get the sense that my life isn't working, then I'm going to look at the emotions that are behind that awareness. And it might be anger sadness, depression, shame, each of those emotions, even though they show up differently in people, each of the emotions always does the job that it does. So anger is always about boundaries. Depression is always about something in your life is not working. And whatever part of you that is awake, your emotions, your psyche is pulling the energy away from you because you don't, you shouldn't be going that way anymore. Don't do it. And a lot of people, if they don't understand the genius in depression, they'll just keep going harder, right? They'll be like, you can't tell me what to do. And I'm like, yes, it can. It just (laughs) did. So don't fight it, right? But, But to listen closely to the emotions, to understand that each one has a very specific message for you and that you can work directly with it. So, and a lot of times that message is painful. And I think people do what I call a fundamental attribution error, which is they blame the emotion, right? Everything would be fine if I wasn't depressed. And I was, no, everything isn't fine because you are depressed, right? And depression is telling you that there's something unlivable here. There's something that's just never going to work and it hasn't worked Then don't go forward anymore. But I think a lot of people are like, I need to put some happiness on that. And happiness is like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I was just resting. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I love that term that you've said, this fundamental attribution error. And I saw that in my life when in my first marriage, feels like a lifetime ago, that, as I mentioned already, one of my, one of my strategies was to just play large amounts of video games. <laughs> and, you know, my wife would complain that I would play video games sometimes for 30 hours at a stretch. It's like oh, really worked. not healthy, right? <laughs> and she would just say, if you just quit playing that game, everything would be fine. And I knew that the game was just a symptom. Yeah. But I didn't know necessarily, or maybe I didn't have the courage, you know, to really look or take the action at what wasn't working in my life. But I've seen that and I think we all have our version of that again, whether it's our whole life or it's just one aspect of our life. You know and so again what i love about this is rather than continuing you know and for anybody who's hearing this that this might be resonating with in any way rather than continuing to live around something going oh there's a message here i believe even a gift (laughs) right and really honoring that and whatever form that takes and i know for each of us we all have our different approaches and and whether it's journaling you know whether it's conversation with people whether it's some i don't know visualization is a useful process but I think there's a variety of different approaches that we can start to access the intelligence that's available to us but what have and and this is just an attempt to kind of shift this to to your experience Carta, because you're the expert here but what do you find when somebody they are feeling this pain or or whatever the emotion is even if it's not pain and they're they're aware that there's something here but now how can we access the intelligence in it and then how can we channel it i don't know that there's an easy answer to that but what what do you see? Like if you were working with somebody one-on-one or you were writing to a specific reader, like what, what do you say to somebody who's at that point?
0: Basically, I would ask them to identify which emotions they're feeling and look at what the emotion does. What is its purpose? And there's a kind of a sort of a Jungian depth psychology approach here, which is it wouldn't have come up if it wasn't necessary for it to come up. You know, like it's there for a reason and it's a gift and it's a gift that has, if you open it, will help you get to a new place that if if you keep it closed, <laughs> if you try to throw it away, the need for it won't resolve. That, that, I mean, at this point, I'm sort of like, emotions are everything. Emotions are everything. And they... I see that if you can get into, if you can understand the emotions, and if you can work with the emotions directly, you can make changes in your life that may look miraculous, but the only reason that they look miraculous is because people don't work with their emotions very often, right? (laughs) They just, you know, they do anything (laughs) but. And, but if emotions are the fundamental basis of your thoughts, ideas, behaviors, and actions, and you need to go there, right? Because that's where everything happens, you know, is you want to be in with the in crowd <laughs> and the emotions of <laughs> the in crowd. <laughs> yeah, no
1: doubt. Well, and, and that's one thing I love about your latest book about embracing anxiety is this idea that you talk about anxiety as a friend. Yes. Which is so different from the way I've tended to think about it or people, you know, when when, we, when the topic of anxiety comes up friend is not a word that usually enters the, the conversation, but why do you, well, let me ask this. Why did you, so embracing anxiety, why did you write this book?
0: Um, it was an apology to anxiety, which is now my friend, but I didn't understand it before and I didn't understand it because I tended not to do anxiety. I tended to, anxiety is the emotion that helps you complete your tasks and hit your deadlines, and so it has a lot, a lot, a lot of energy and a lot of work to do, and it's a very all-encompassing emotion because it needs to know, you know, what are the plans, what are your resources, what are your failures, what, like, it's got the whole picture, and Because of my early trauma, I tended to avoid emotions that were anywhere near panic because I spent a lot of my life in panic and dissociation. So anxiety and panic can kind of hang out together. And that's important. They're both very important emotions and there's important reasons for them to do that. But I tended to get things done maybe months or years before they needed to get done. So my anxiety never needed to go up to a higher level than I could handle. So I thought, when people are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, I thought, this is just bad skills. Like, these people just don't have skills. And I thought it was a problem. I thought anxiety was a problem. Until I began to understand it more clearly and spend more time with it and just learn more and become less ignorant. And... um, understanding anxiety now, it's not in the language of emotions. It's not one of the emotions that I wrote about. I wrote about it. Oh, anxiety, whatever, get over yourself. So I really am looking forward to the time when I can do the next version of language of emotions, you know, the abridged version, pal, so that I can get anxiety in there. But I mean, it's a brilliant, necessary emotion. It is how you get things done. That's anxiety's whole job.
1: Yeah. I mean, that whole part you talk about, about hitting deadlines, completing tasks. I'm like, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) I'm with you there. (laughs) Right.
0: Where can I buy that emotion?
1: (laughs) Right. And I've heard, you know, I see this in some of the work I do with people, especially those who would describe themselves or not object to being described as achievers. Mm -hmm. That, you know, one of the things that I, that I endeavor to teach those who want to learn it is about mindfulness. And many people seem to say, many people who are driven, maybe the type A type person, We'll say well if I if I become really present or if I spend more time in peace and calm, I won't be as productive and And so in this way, you know I can hear a conversation somebody saying well if I if I learn to manage my anxiety, will I be less efficient or will I be less effective in the world
0: If the managing includes repressing it and throwing another emotion on top of it yes you will become less effective because now you're just screwing around right? yeah. so working with the anxiety understanding what it's doing that is something that's very very different than what a lot of people do which is trying to affect a manufactured calm and there's a like a there's a dance to do with anxiety where if a a deadline's coming up and you need to get something done, you need more energy, right? And so for me in working, helping people work with emotions, it's to teach them how to down regulate and up regulate. So to down regulate, be like, all right, anxiety, I have 20 hours, I need to rest and I'm going to get this done then, right? So you can down regulate, but if it's I've got 45 minutes, I'm gonna be like, anxiety, I need you to do your dance, put on your shoes, and let's go, because this is serious. And then hopefully I've learned to work with anxiety at that time, but, but it's important to be able to go in both directions. And most people learn just to downregulate into a calm state, which is, in my understanding, it's just utilizing sadness to sort of wash away whatever emotion's there. And that's okay sometimes. Right. Sometimes you need to do that, but it shouldn't be your only skill. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That makes sense to me. And you also introduced me to this distinction that I was not aware of before about different, you know, the way people relate to anxiety kind of fundamentally or something. And I think you called it about task oriented people versus deadline oriented people. I I think a lot of people listening will will be like, Oh, that, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Will you talk about that?
0: I love this. This is what I heard from Dr. Mary Lamia who wrote a book. I heard this in 2010 and I put anxiety into my 2013 book, The Art of Empathy. So it's like, yay, I got another book to write so I can put anxiety in. But I heard her on a radio show and she was talking about two kinds of approaches to anxiety, that there's two ways to work with anxiety. Some people are task-oriented, and that means that their anxiety is kind of in a steady state where they go from task to task to task to task. They get things done. They like lists. They like crossing things off on the lists. Now, task-oriented people are the people that we have been trained to see as effective and professional. There's another way to work with anxiety that's just as as important. It's just as professional. It's just as effective, but you'll never hear that unless you read Mary Lamia's book, which is procrastinators. And procrastinators are deadline focused as opposed to task focused.
1: Deadline focused sounds so much nicer than procrastinator.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know it, doesn't it? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, per- the word procrastination is totally valenced. There's just no, yeah. there's no good side to it, right? But What happens with a task-focused person is they are constantly on, right? And it's hard for them to rest because if they go into a room where things are dirty, they're going to have to clean that room because it's a task, right? If there's things on their desk, they're going to need... So they can be less focused. A procrastinator or a deadline-focused person sees it's due on May 15th. They may be able to chill all the way through till May 13th, right? Whereas a task person would be task, 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 task. And so they have a way to relax and they're working on the deadline in somewhere in the recesses of their mind. Then on May 13th, their anxiety goes to 15 from one to 10. It goes to 15, right? And they might stay up for two days and the thing is done. That is a perfectly acceptable way to work with anxiety. It is one of the ways to do it. But those people are shamed all the time. And when they get things done, they're considered lucky. Like you did that by the skin of your teeth, you, you pirate. You know yeah, you, you lazy bag. You lazy bum. But I think that was one of the most lovely things about it was to notice that I, I'm a task person. I live with a deadline person. And there was a lot of unnecessary, you know, Sturm und Drang in the house about that. And now I'm just like, whatever, you know, you do your thing and I'll do mine. Yeah, that, I,
1: I totally see that. And like I said, I didn't have language for that. I mean, I recognize it in myself as being a, a Deadline oriented person. And and I just I just read this quote that I love so much that's in line with this. You've you probably seen this. Leonard Bernstein, to achieve great things, two things are needed. A plan and not quite enough time. <laughs> you know, that that totally resonates. And then and what Duke Ellington said about I didn't de- I don't need more time, I need a deadline.
0: <laughs>
1: right. And and what I wonder this really, Carlo, is one of the big questions for me in life right now, which is man, I'm not even sure how to ask it or if it deserves the the time in this conversation. But I've seen that. And here's a little bit of my personal inquiry that I hope will be useful to someone listening that they would see some way this was relevant to them. And then your answer would help us both. But there's a lot of times where I'll make a commitment to myself. So the deadline is only to me. It's, hey, I'm going to finish this manuscript or I'm going to do this project at home or whatever. And I might've made it to a significant other, but a lot of times this is just to me. But it's easy to not honor a deadline that I've set with myself. What's your experience in effectively keeping commitments that we've made when the only person we've committed to is, is us?
0: For me, I would look at what is underneath that and why. You know, it's, it's like an inquiry of was that a realistic thing? right was it realistic clearly okay i'm going to tell you the secret clearly it wasn't because you didn't do it right well
1: couldn't couldn't that just be i didn't really want it in the first place
0: yeah yeah was it was it valid was it appropriate was it realistic it could be that in your behavior you're telling yourself that it's not right in your behavior of not doing the thing you there's something there that just isn't that isn't happening for you and I mean, a lot of times people are more severe taskmasters of themselves than they would let anybody else be. And one of the questions I ask is if anybody treated you like you treat yourself, would you call the police?
1: <laughs> yeah. Or would you still be friends with them?
0: <laughs> would you still right. be friends with them? Like, nope, yeah. I suck.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us, we, we really wouldn't. And And this is so compelling to me too, because there is a way in which I believe that what we have is what we want, right? Like you look at our behavior as the proof of what we believe. It's, it's evidence of what we truly desire and things like that. And the only way this is really complicated for me right now is that we're always both being and becoming. So we're something in the process of becoming something else. So I acknowledge there's a way that I might say, whatever, I want to be, I want to become a doctor. I want to be a best-selling author. I want to be whatever. And then three years go by, 10 years go by and we haven't become that dude, we really want it. Right. And, and so that what we have is what we want. And that's where when, when I look at, and I love what you're saying about what's underneath that. I don't know where I'm going with this anymore, except this is, this is the kind of thing I think about when I'm by myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, have you seen the book? It was an older book called Wishcraft.
1: Barbara. Share. Barbara Share. I haven't read it. I own it.
0: It's a wonderful book because she's so real. And one of the one of the practices I took out of that is conscious complaining, but she calls it griping. And she's like, if you're trying to do something you've never done before, and it's like a dream you've had your whole life, so many people don't make it. And she's like, because you need to tell yourself and allow yourself to know that it's freaking hard. And you need to be able to say to somebody, you know, this is awful. I can't do this. I don't know how anybody does this. It's ridiculous, right? All these things that in a valenced world, you would not be able to do because it's not positive affirmations, which I hate. But, um.
1: <laughs> Wait, why do you hate positive affirmations?
0: <laughs> because they're bullshit. <both laughs> the research has shown. That positive affirmations actually only work for people who already feel good about themselves, and that they have a backlash effect in people who have a lower self esteem, and the reason is because it's a lie. If you don't feel that way, if you have low self esteem, so I mean, there's certain ways that talking about yourself in a more up tempo, you know, fashion is good, but to say things like "I am surrounded by love and kindness at all time," you know, whatever. I'm good, I'm good enough. enough.
1: I'm smart I'm enough.
0: enough. And gosh darn it, everybody likes me. But yeah, so the 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 concept in wishcraft is you need to just tear it up, and talk about how rotten it is and how hard it is. And instead of making people lose their their hope, it actually you know it gets gives them energy back because they've told the truth.
1: Yeah, and and so it doesn't get lost on anyone listening. What you're talking about, and I again I, I haven't read Witchcraft, but as you say, you call what Barbara called griping, you're calling conscious complaining, meaning this is not just like spewing to anybody within earshot why it's so crappy and all this, but instead very intentionally creating a space or a time going into it. I think you you propose we do this alone.
0: Yes, I do have a practice for. For partners in the Art of Empathy book, but yeah, in the first one, it's alone and create a ritual around it. Have a beginning, middle, and end, and and do your complaining. I had to do it alone because very few people can handle the amount of complaining I can produce. It's it's uh, yeah, it's world changing amounts of complaining. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you can also do it as a partner practice as long as you you know there's. There's a ritual aspect to it where it it does end and there's rules and guidelines around it.
1: So obviously, you know, people can read about that in embracing anxiety, but if you, will you just walk us through what, I mean, because you talk about a beginning and middle end and you're talking mm-hmm. about this idea of ritual, which I love because I think in our modern society, we've somehow lost touch with a lot of ritual that would actually serve us. But what would it look like? Say somebody you know, wants to put this on pause or at the a- end of this interview, they want to go practice this conscious complaining ritual. How would they do it?
0: First, you find some place that's private, which is a part of rituals, finding the appropriate place and setting boundaries and thresholds around it. So you might have a boundary of time to say, I'm going to do this for three minutes, which you don't think that's a long time. It's a long time. Bring a timer, which also sets a boundary and a threshold. And I start it by saying, all right, I'm complaining now and then i just go like i can't find anybody to help me with this this is ridiculous this is you know whatever i'm feeling and then at the end of the 3 minutes say thank you and move on but during the middle of that time everything is everything is fair game and what i find with conscious complaining because it has that ritual aspect, I find that I get to what's really underneath it very quickly. So it be like, you know, I might start with like, everybody sucks and blah, blah, blah. So there's lots of anger happening and lots of, you know, even hatred. And then I get to the place of, and I don't want to let anybody down and I'm afraid. Do you know what I mean? It, then it gets no. to the... To what's to the, real
1: or what's underneath it.
0: Yeah. The, 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 the things that I'm protecting with the anger and the and the I'm a tough guy kind of a thing, and then at the end I may cry and say thank you, but I'm never the same after that three minutes, you know, as I was when I started. All I know is I just feel crappy. But with conscious complaining, I can sort of let my emotions all have a chance to speak, and there's there's no there's no backlash. I haven't. You know, I haven't heard anybody else and I haven't even been heard by anybody else. It's just me and my emotions.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's great. Okay. So let me ask this before we transition. I know there's so much we could talk about. We've only touched on a few things in in this book, embracing anxiety, but that first of all, this thing about conscious complaining is one of six practices that you write about that where we can bring mindfulness to our anxiety and our ability to channel and effectively use our emotion. Right. So that's, that's pretty cool. And, and by the way, I, I led, I have a monthly mindfulness group and, and yesterday I walked them through your practice of resourcing. Yeah, it was really, it was really a neat thing. And I got some feedback from some of the participants after that. It was exactly what they needed to hear right now. Would, would you just share for a moment? What, what is resourcing?
0: Resourcing is a practice that I borrowed from somatic therapy. And somatic therapy is a, um, somatic is the body. And this is the therapy of Peter Levine called Somatic Experiencing. And in it, he teaches you how to do sort of an open focus meditation in your own body. So let's say you're feeling your head hurts. And what most of us will do is focus everything on the pain in our head or we'll try to distract ourselves, right? But it's always about the pain. In focusing, you find a part of your body that feels really quite different. So your elbow, it could be something small, your elbow or the top part of the skin of your thigh that feels calm and relaxed and chill right now. And in in focusing, you go back and forth between the pain in your head and the comfort in your thigh and not to erase either one, but to open up your focus to include both. And I really like that because it is an unvalancing of the body. It's an unvalancing of the experience. And so you really have a middle path and and it helps to see that because a lot of times when we're in pain, we go to hyper-focus and this is more open focus.
1: Yeah. I, I really love that. And I know you don't necessarily present it this way, but to me, this is a very spiritual practice because you know my one of my views of spirituality is that it's about expansion and inclusion it's not about excluding anything it's not about excluding the pain it's about making space for it and recognizing that something else is also available like that is really a beautiful thing and to get that as an awareness is the starting point i think but then to do the practice is something else and it really can change our whole experience
0: yeah yeah i'm looking at a lot of people's behaviors around the covid-19 situation right now and there's some people going Too far into it by just hyper focusing on all the worst news, and then other people going, "What about butterflies and flowers? Let's all think about that, and how you know we're gonna have a a utopian society after this happens." And I went, "You know what? There's a middle place here (laughs) that you're missing."
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. It's never what we, never quite what we expect. Okay, so before we we transition, here's kind of a broad question, but what else? feels important or appropriate to you to say it this time about anxiety or about the book Embracing Anxiety? What haven't we talked about?
0: I think with anxiety, there's a lot of confusion that people have about anxiety. One of the things that anxiety does naturally is it works with other emotions because it needs to to help you get your stuff done. And some of those emotions are negative, if you want to think of them that way, the allegedly negative emotions. But we and don't so, because
1: we've unvalenced them.
0: <laughs> yes, we've totally <laughs> unvalenced the emotions and we'll never valence them again. That for many people, the experience of anxiety is sort of like an emotion pileup. So they are not wrong to think of anxiety as a painful emotion because there's a lot happening there. And so part of what I do in the book is I take nine other emotions that normally show up with anxiety and help people work with them individually and understand when they're together what they're doing. And one of the big emotions that is almost always confused with anxiety is panic. And so if people's anxiety has any sense of dread thought of loss of life, constriction, panic attack, anxiety attack. Those are always when panic is with anxiety. And sometimes it's necessary that panic is with anxiety. And so it's important to understand both emotions, how to work with them, because they're powerful. They're, they're like, if you were a mom and they were having a slumber party, you'd want to drive one of them home. <laughs> you'd be Like I'm going to have to separate you two because <laughs> this is a lot right now.
1: <laughs> no, that, that's, that makes sense to me about these emotions blend. And sometimes I think about, and maybe you do too, about emotion like color where, you know, you sometimes see the palette. It, it I love the example on the computer where it has all the gradients. And you look in it, if those were words and you've done a a wonderful job of creating that resource you talked about on your website of all the different emotion words, but, and I know some people have tried to arrange them in these kinds of shapes and things like this, but that makes sense to me that we're just using a word to describe it. But clearly that word is something we've agreed to call an experience, right? And so no wonder that these things are going to blend together. And, and the fact that you go in and look at how does anxiety kind of interface with these other emotions That's really, that's really useful. That's great. Okay. So I suspect I'll have a few more things that I want to ask about that. And we can say anything more before we wrap, but I propose we move to, I'm just looking about shame, by the way. That's interesting. There's this, this part in your book. If you doubt yourself and feel unable to proceed, which fortunately that never happens to any of us, (laughs) if you doubt yourself and feel unable to proceed check in with your shame your shame arises when you're not living up to your agreements or ethics or when your agreements and ethics need to be updated because they're not workable or livable. It's pretty interesting. It's interesting to me to think we could update our ethics. It's not just a code that was installed in us when we were little and we must live that forever.
0: It feels that way though.
1: Yeah, it it, it can be scary to change. Okay, so let's transition to the enlightening lightning round if you're good with that.
0: Lightning, 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. Can you say it three times fast.
1: In lightning round, enlightening, <laughs> lightning round, Lightning, <laughs> lightning round. Yes. yes. Okay. Again, this is intended to be a series of brief questions. I have nine. I will ask them as briefly as possible. And for the most part, stand aside. I might ask you to expand a little bit. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. Number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a
0: whole bunch of emotions trying to help you at once.
1: <laughs> Why does inside out come to mind right now? <laughs> <I know. laughs> okay. Number two, Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on?
0: Oh my God. I can think of so many, Ah, but shame is a vital and marvelous and masterful and brilliant and beautiful emotion that we literally cannot live without. Oh, people come after me for that one. Yeah, yeah. People come for me with torches on that one.
1: (laughs) Wow, why?
0: (laughs) Because a lot of people would say that shame is a terrible emotion you should never feel and you should only feel guilt. That shame is about what you are and guilt is about what you've done and people can't live with thinking that what they are is, uh, yeah, it's a long story. Okay.
1: (laughs) 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 And you talk about this in, in your writing?
0: i do I do talk about shame in the embracing anxiety, and i i take a I take a bat to that idea
1: okay, fair enough. we're going to keep moving. Number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: Never mind the rumors chocolate heels <laughs>
1: <laughs> Milk chocolate, white chocolate, dark chocolate oh
0: my gosh, dark chocolate there's no other thing
1: okay. Number four, what book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: There's so many of them. Oh my gosh. I'm a book freak. Meeting the Shadow.
1: I don't know that. How do I not know that book?
0: It's, from, it's a bit older. It's by Connie Zweig and Jeremiah Abrams. And it's a whole bunch of people talking about how to do shadow work. It's brilliant.
1: Hmm. Awesome. What are you currently reading?
0: I usually read about five books at a time. And I'm working on a new book on the workplace. So I'm working. Do you want the whole list?
1: Sure. <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you've if you got it or what comes to mind.
0: I'm reading Lance Dottis' The Heart of Addiction. Beautiful. Mm. I'm reading a book called On the Clock about... Low wage work in America. I'm reading a book called *The Managed Heart* about emotional labor in the workplace. I'm reading *Shogun*, which my friend Judy Yuko calls Japan porn. And
1: <laughs> I read that, James Clavell.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I'm reading a book called *Humble Consulting* by Edgar Schein.
1: Right on. Okay, thank you, and props to you for knowing them all. Right off like it's that. Like, whew. That's awesome. Okay. So, you travel a ton. You've taught all over the world. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: I bring my own pillowcase. It just seems to make everything different. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, if, you, if your head is on your own pillowcase, it's almost like you're at home, right?
1: Yeah. Do, do you ever make the mistake of leaving it on the pillow and then the housekeeping like takes your pillowcase?
0: No, because I make sure it's a brightly colored one. Mm, smart. Yeah, so it's very clear. Yeah.
1: Right on. Anything you do in the preparation or the act of traveling, like any special requests from airlines or hotels or any other things you do?
0: Upper floor, away from the noise. And I am task oriented. So I unpack everything when I get there. That's really important to me. Some people want to be in their luggage and that really is important to them, but I have to unpack everything and organize things.
1: I didn't used to do that, but my wife has trained me
0: and now <laughs> I just get it
1: over with and it feels so much better. That's smart. Okay. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: I have... I've been doing water exercise for the last 15 years and I've started doing land-based exercise for the muscle muscle stuff, right? As I'm getting older. Yeah.
1: Very amphibious of you.
0: Yes, very amphibious. <laughs>
1: what are some of the water? Is this water aerobics or?
0: Yeah, it's like water calisthenics and aerobics. And so I did that from an injury and I liked it so much better than land-based exercise. But now I have to do like weight-bearing stuff and weightlifting
1: Right on. Any particular like programmer style? It's not CrossFit or <laughs> any <laughs> anything <laughs> like that?
0: Do you hear that joke? A CrossFitter, a vegan, and an atheist walked into the bar. And the reason I know that is because they all told me within one minute. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds about right. That no, I just do
0: uh, circuit training at the gym.
1: Right on. You know, on that topic of veganism, we're not vegan in our household, but I am vegetarian and my wife usually eats very little meat. And, and so if there's meat on our table, it's not real meat almost. always. And, <laughs> and our 13 year old son, he hates that. And when our six-year-old didn't eat her vegan meat, he said to her in total seriousness, Maya, there are vegans out there right now who don't have any vegan meat. <laughs> I was like, Okay. I don't know that I'll ever forget that. Okay. Number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: I was going to say something sarcastic. Um,
1: That's the real answer though, isn't it? The first thing.
0: Yeah. It's like how to vote.
1: Mm, Yeah. Why does that matter to you?
0: Well, so many people don't vote. So many people don't vote. Maybe what if they knew that voting could be a national holiday And it could be mail-in and yeah, voting is a mess here. It's a mess. Yeah.
1: I don't know about you, but it doesn't surprise me when I think many people don't even seem to engage in their own life. You know, certainly I wouldn't expect them to engage in a political process. So, okay. Number eight, what's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? Or what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work?
0: That many specific things, compatibility is a crucial. Compatibility is crucial in certain areas, and there's there's deal killers that you really can't get through. And I used to like choose the deal killers and try to prove that it would work. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that. Wouldn't
1: suggest it. What's an example of that?
0: A deal killer would be uh, somebody with a toxic ex-spouse that is not managed in any way, and so the, or toxic family, long-distance relationships, having very very different approaches to child rearing, having very very different approaches to money, and to sexuality, like just like someone who's just not compatible with you at all. I, for me, I need someone who's like very simpatico with me because life is trouble. I don't need trouble in my house.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. But what happens when we've already, you know, there's that saying you've made your bed. Now you got to lie in it. (laughs) It's kind of like you've entered into your marriage. Now you got to live with it. What do you say to people when they wake up to that, the importance of the compatibility, but they don't have it, you know, some number of years in or after the kids have shown up or whatever.
0: I mean, I would say definitely go and get some therapy, get some couples therapy and see if it's, if it's worth keeping going for some people. Yes. The, the the holding on to what is, is much more important than making the changes. Yeah. It's so individual.
1: Yeah, for sure. There's no prescription. Is there? And we probably all heard the stories. I just heard one not long ago about the couple that had been married like 25 years. And as soon as the last kid moved out, they just told everybody divorce. I was like, whoa. We're done. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something that you always do with it or never do with it?
0: That's such a good question. What's your answer?
1: (laughs) What is my answer?
0: What's your answer? Because.
1: You know, what comes up for me right now is to spend money in alignment with your with what you truly value, right? Like if you're, if you're, I mean, just one example for me would be, you know, if I I don't mean to make this about vegetarianism, but I don't believe, and I'm not an activist about this. I don't talk about this a lot, but I don't believe in the captive animal farming operation. And I think there's something that I hate to say it's wrong, but I certainly don't stand for it. And I, I, I don't want to spend my money in support of something like that. And I think that's true in the products we buy and the activities we engage in and that, you know, so to really to vote with, to realize that every dollar you spend is a vote in support of something
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and how you give, not just what you spend, but also how you give. Yeah. That's what I would say.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have a funny connection to money because I didn't grow up with money at all. And so for me, this learning to live without it. And some money is too expensive. Like you can have people want you to do something and pay you well for it, but it ends up being you're selling your soul to them. I get a lot of offers like that as a writer and you know, people want me to come and do this, that and the other thing. And I'm like, nope, nope. Yeah. Some money is too expensive.
1: Interesting. All right. Thank you for that. And the final question here, just to make sure we get it in, don't leave it till the very end of the interview. If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
0: There is my website, Carla and I also train people to do my work called dynamic emotional integration and we have lots of cool courses on emotions and empathy at empathyacademy.org. If you want to take a course or hang out with people who are one of the rules at Empathy Academy is you have to be hilarious and empathic. You can't be one or the other. You gotta be both.
1: You gotta be both. <laughs> Well, I know a sense of humor counts for a lot, and I'm reminded too of, I heard that one time when the Dalai Lama was asked, what's the most important quality for a spiritual teacher? He responded, a sense of humor.
0: <laughs> He's That's not quite. kidding. Pretty, yeah,
1: <laughs> I could see that. Okay. And Empathy Academy offers courses both online and in person. Is that right?
0: No, just online for that one, but we do have uh, in-person courses, which are listed on my, on my site.
1: Awesome. Okay. Congratulations! You survived the enlightening lightning round. Yay! <laughs> yes.
0: And I only I needed to... one call a friend.
1: <laughs> you, you did it. And I'll also say this here to make sure that I say it, as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and share your knowledge and experience, your wisdom and experience with with me and everyone listening. I have gone on Kiva.org, the micro lending site, and I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman entrepreneur in Tajikistan named Muyasar, who will use this money to help pay her daughter's tuition at Polytechnic University to get a degree, a degree in programming. So thank you for giving me a reason to do this small gesture for somebody that nice. we we'll probably never meet.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: My pleasure. Okay. So we're in the final portion of the interview, which is about writing, the creative process, Perhaps even a little bit about marketing and promotion, just you know, how do we get our ideas, how do we get people to notice them, to care about them, to engage with them, that kind of thing. But I think it all starts with what is your now that you've written, you've written about five books?
0: more? more than OK, so many books. Many
1: books. I'm reminded of some cultures that literally their only counting system is one too many. Like, wow, that's really. So yeah. many, many books. How has your process of writing a book changed over the years?
0: I'm thinking of my earliest books, and I wrote them before I had a publisher because the the impetus to write was so powerful that I didn't even think about money or anything like that. It was just I needed to write the book. And now I only write when it's something that really needs to be written and hasn't been written by anyone else. I don't want to write any kind of derivative book and... I wait until either my publishers ask me for a specific book, like Embracing Anxiety, which I thought was a really good idea, or I feel like there's something that really needs to be said, that something's really missing, and then I will write a book. But yeah, I think my process of writing a book is the same as it was then.
1: Interesting. Will you walk us through, what's it like from the time you settle on a concept or you choose the the book that you're going to write, how do you... How do you approach it? How do you go through it from whatever the outline the research, the outlining, the drafting, the editing, that kind of thing? What's your, will you sketch out for us as best you can? Just what's your process like?
0: One of the first things is proposal, if it's going to be a book for someone else. And the proposal gives me a good skeletal structure. You have to write out what's in each chapter and you have to sort of give a, give a sample chapter and talk about what other books are in the genre. So you just sort of have, you do your research and you get a picture of what's out there and what's available. And then I've got the proposal, I've sold the book, and now the writing process takes the proposal as maybe a skeleton and maybe I'm going to throw it out. Because in the writing process, then I learn what the book's about and the book tells me what it's about. Something I do, and I don't know if other writers do this, but I write chronologically in terms of, I start at page one, I start at the intro, and I move through. I know where I'm going based on, you know, what that paragraph was that I had for chapters, you know, one through 15 or whatever, and I drop that in. But as I move through page one, I let the book tell me where it's going, And so by the time I've gone through the book, I may have gone through the first pages two, three, four hundred times. And so I'm constantly massaging the first parts of the book as I'm moving through to the end. Sometimes I'll jump into like chapter 14 and I'll move. Some people jump around and drop things, places, and sometimes I will. But mostly it's very, it's very task oriented. It's very go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing.
1: Uh, What's your routine of writing like? Do you have any habits or rituals that you use either before you begin or in the act of? Do you, and, and do you have anything like, do you have a page count or word count, you know, anything like that that you set for yourself each, each writing session or whatever?
0: I don't give myself any, any page or word counts because I've learned that, first, I write a lot and I write quickly, but I never learned to type. And I also have many learning disabilities. And so it's there's a lot of typos that happen. <laughs> so if I sit too long, my learning disabilities will get stronger. So I've learned to sort of meter it out. But what I found is I really like writing in the morning. And I need privacy. And right now, everybody's home. We're sheltering in place. So it's been hard to write. But I didn't realize how much I needed privacy until I didn't have it. It's like I need uninterrupted time, no music, no sound, no nothing. I need to sit and write. And other people can listen to music. I'm interested in that. I'm not going to do it, but I'm interested in why, <laughs> why that works for them.
1: Yeah, it is, it is interesting to me how writing is a very, in some ways it's very, right? We, we sit down in front of a keyboard or some of us write longhand, but it's very same, but it's also very individual. Like I, I know of one best-selling author who will write he always writes with a movie playing it's that he what? turns the sound off but he'll have inspiration so i was like oh that was reservoir dogs or that was you know like really what? that's so fascinating that yeah yeah but we all have our own our own thing what what's the best money you've ever spent as a writer
0: i was writing before word was a thing before microsoft word was a thing well, how and you i have doing to it? say T-
1: typewriter longhand
0: Yeah. Longhand, then typewriter, then selectric, then, you know, it's like, so I've been writing all the way. And I have to say, word processing programs are the bomb. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. I would never go back. Never. I don't know why people type. I'm like, what are you? You're just wasting paper right now. (laughs) Yeah. Serious.
1: (laughs) What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them?
0: <laughs> some people have said that my writing is musical and I am a musician and a sense for me and I don't think I can explain it because it's sort of in the bones it's got to have a um it's got to have a fluid arc to it and a lot of times I'll go in and I'll start changing I'll start changing does and ands and this and that and moving things around because something doesn't feel right but I think there's like a there's a logical musical flow to a sentence that needs to happen. And then a paragraph, this isn't always true, but I feel like a paragraph should be able to be moved anywhere in the, in the chapter and it should still make sense. Like a paragraph should hold its energy and lead into the next thing, but it needs to hold itself together. So it's almost like it's a little, it's a little minuet or something.
1: No, I like that. Do you read, I, I, that I concur with that, by the way, that it is, what I would have said is I would have said is very readable. Like your writing is very readable. You know, they're not long technical sentences with complicated, you know, words and things like this. The ideas to me were new and interesting, but it, it wasn't, it's not labor intensive to read your writing, you know? Thank you. So with that, oh, let me ask you this. Do you read it aloud or have someone read it aloud and you listen? Is that a part of why? It's you, part of you the, I read that?
0: it to myself but i read it you know uh, audibly to myself and that's why i keep going through and massaging if i trip over the sentence then there's something wrong with it as yeah. i'm trying to speak it and yeah so so the flow is really really important to me in in writing and also i have to say that complex sentences and complex writing generally to me show that a person maybe doesn't understand the thing very clearly like if they don't understand it well enough to simplify it, I don't know if they should be writing yet. <laughs>
1: yeah. But the paradox being, and many, I've heard many people say this, I don't know what I think until I write it,
0: <laughs> but, right?
1: But that all, all truly great writing is rewriting. Yeah. That there's nobody on the planet, at least that I've encountered yet, who is masterful on the first draft.
0: Yeah, edit, 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 edit. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well let's let's talk about that for a moment. What's your what's your relationship with editors like? How and when do they come in? How do you work together? How do you know when you how do you find a good one or one that's gonna work well with you?
0: My longtime editor, it sounds true, Haven Iverson, basically we just trust each other. And I my work gets very, very little editing. Sometimes none but Haven will sometimes pick something out of chapter eight and saying, this needs to be the beginning of the book. She did that on Bracing anxiety. I was like, really? Because I thought I was making the argument that led for me to say this thing in chapter eight. She's like, nope. So she can like, you know, fly over and see things that I didn't see because I'm in the middle of trying to make an argument to be able to say a thing. And that's been very good because it's, it's nice to write for her because I know how careful she is. So we have a good working relationship, but basically it's very, because I go through my writing so intently and I've captured all the mistakes, because of my learning disabilities, I'm much more careful about my writing than regular schmoes. Like I'm a super schmo. (laughs) So I don't tend, I mean, I will, there will be typos in it that I haven't seen, but generally the structure's good and I'm really... Proud of that. Yay. Yeah.
1: No, that's no that's no easy feat.
0: No. And you know what I'm realizing is really important for me as I write? I need to read well written fiction that has a strong narrative structure. Right?
1: What some that you've enjoyed?
0: Well, I'm reading Shogun again. Shogun has some of them. I I don't think he ever wrote another book that was as good as it. And they're all so big I don't even care to look at them. But his characters the structure. He's got themes going all the way through. You know the character by how they think or speak. You're never like, who is this? You know, you're like, what? Who? I don't remember this person. You remember everyone. It's just amazing. Another one, of course, is Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, I have Stephen King does some good narrative structure. So I also like to watch multi-season TV with arcs. Like really good character arcs because it helps me with the flow of my book. Bad books, no, those are terrible. I can watch a bad movie or a bad TV show because then I can say, this is where you messed, messed up. This is where this character lost their cohesion with the story. You just, I don't know why you did that, right? So it's like I'm, yeah, being in a, in a critical place with, with character flow and arcs. And yeah,
1: that's interesting. You know, that makes me think it's a little different from exactly what you're talking about. But as you were speaking, this came to mind is talking about music and Stephen King. That's where it came to mind was in his memoir slash writing advice manual. Oh, my gosh. On writing. Mm -hmm. Right. Where he talks about the fact that he does write with very loud music playing. What? Yeah. Like Metallica and other like hard rock and heavy metal. Okay. Whoa, that's really interesting. And, And so just like you're describing what you're, even what you're watching influences the project you're working on. That's, that's interesting to me, but I suppose, you know, not surprising, you know? So for anybody who's listening to this, who is aspiring to begin, begin already, or to complete, you know, a project of their own, realizing that the act of writing is not disconnected from the other things in your life, the other activities, the other pastimes and pursuits.
0: Yeah. When I'm writing, I'm always writing. Everything I do is writing, even though it's making dinner or something like that, right? Going on a walk, everything is writing.
1: That's interesting. Do you ever, with that approach, do you ever feel yourself reaching kind of a point of burnout or fatigue? And if so, how do you deal with it?
0: Sometimes. And I will walk away from the book completely. I'll just walk away. And I've never actually not finished a book, but I have walked away from it. I was like, nope, I got to go. I gotta go. And the book that I'm working on now, I walked away from for a month or two because the the subject matter was just too big for me. And I had to just let my emotions work on it in the background while I did something else. I'm just like, nope, nope, I can't do this.
1: Interesting. Who have been some of your influences? Like who's been influential to your development as a writer and what have you learned from them?
0: Well, definitely these books that I read over and over again. Mm -hmm. And poets. Oh, certainly Rumi. And yeah, I guess there's just so many bits and pieces of the writer's life. Vonnegut. Vonnegut was huge for me when I was young and growing up. And he did so many unusual things with his writing, just really kind of off the wall stuff. And he helped me see that you could write as yourself. You didn't have to put on this writerly hat and be someone different, you know, like I have to use big words to write, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. My, my whole life is reading and writing. It's hard to pick out specific people.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. With that, what else, as it relates to writing or the creative process, haven't we talked about that might serve someone listening who's in this inquiry themselves?
0: For me, writing was never a choice. It was never like, I want to be a writer. What was funny to me is like, I would write when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. I would write about it, <laughs> I would write long things about what I was going to be. And I didn't realize that I had been a writer since I was little, and everything that I was interested in, everything that I did, was writing. So it was kind of a like a surprise. Oh, I already am a writer. Oh, darn, I already am a writer. And something that I learned very late is you don't have to be good at all of the pieces of writing. I didn't know that. I thought you had to be good at everything, which is why my my books don't get edited because I learned how to be an editor. I learned how I ran a printing press. I learned all of the aspects of bookmaking. I learned everything myself. And I had a publishing company, right? It's like, I did everything. You don't have to do, I know writers who don't know how to work their computer. I know writers who send 150,000 page manuscript into their editor to fix into a book. I was like, no. 150,000 page or 150,000?
1: 150, 150,000
0: word. word manuscript that needs to be down to 60 to make a book. And they send it to their editor. I was so like, you like, are freaking kidding me.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's like a thousand pages, 1, 12, 1500 pages. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. And, and the editor's doing all the work. I'm like, yeah, I hope that editor's getting part of your advance, pal. Cause... But I didn't know that. You know, I, I came from nothing. So I thought I have to be as talented at everything as I possibly can. A lot of writers can't spell. They can't type. They can't like, function. <laughs> all they can do is think of these great ideas, but they don't give their editors a finished book. I didn't know that. I had no idea. So if, if you suck at some things, <laughs> but you have really good ideas, probably you could become a writer. Have someone look at your stuff before you send it in, like pay an editor. There's editors out there. And also, editing is very different than writing. A lot of editors can't write because they're too busy critiquing what they're doing. So don't think you have to be a good editor right away. You can learn that. It's weird. It's weird stuff you don't know.
1: Yeah. And you learn as you go. And, and everything you're sharing is very encouraging. And I think, I mean, for me and for anybody who wants to to do this as a profession, or at least as a significant part of their lives, including, you know, your own example of saying that, you know, you have learning disabilities, but you write books that matter to people anyway. <laughs> and it's not an excuse. It's you just, you you, you know, you do it. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. I do want to ask this, what you just shared prompted something for me. You talked about being a writer. It was never a choice for you. But what I wondered was, was there a moment when you realized you were?
0: Yeah, I think it was when I was 21. And I had sent in, I was a apartment manager. And I wrote a series of articles about how to clean apartments because it was what I did all my life and someone saw it and thought it was good and gave me a gig and I got my first royalty check and I was like, now I'm a paid writer. It's great.
1: That's, that's cool. Well, good. Okay. Well, I know I said, maybe there were some questions in marketing and promotion. And I only say that because I know, again, many people think the finish line is publishing a book or completing a manuscript, but there's more than a million books on Amazon right now without a single sale. And I doubt those authors are very fulfilled. What have you learned about marketing or promoting a book that, that's been useful to you?
0: For me, it's the long game because I've, I'm, I'm in this. I'm in this for the long haul. So I tend not to do anything that, that is very like jacked up. Like one of the things on my website is I don't ever say that people can have something for free and then they have to trade me their email. I know that's like like industry standard, but I refuse to do it. I want people to 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 do things of their own free will. So, I tend to not do anything shiny or or sparkly or or manipulative. And so what I tend to have is long-term relationships with my readers. So yeah, my, my, my marketing and promotion is the long haul and it's not excitable or exciting and probably online marketers are trying to, you know, hang themselves out of a window right now when they heard that because I'm like, nope, if I feel it's manipulative, I refuse to do it. Who knew? <laughs> yeah,
1: I've, I've only heard one other person talk about that. I'm, I'm sure there are a few, you know, all well, it's counter to what's being taught in so many, you know, webinars and things. But it was a guy Keith Cunningham, where he talked about that. You know, if your if your message is so important and your content is so good, why do you need to coerce people or, you know, to give them your contact information? Like, prove it to me. So, no, thank you for that. The other thing I just feel prompted to ask here is about. You know, it's it's something that I'm also learning more about. I'm interested in, and with your, with the work you've done and the experience you've had. I'd love to get your view on this. It's totally unrelated to writing and the creative process, or maybe it's not actually, but it's about, it's about. I'm not even sure what, what question to ask, but it's around the principle of non-doing. It's around effortless action, You know what Buddhists might call spontaneous right action. It's about this idea that perhaps there is a greater intelligence in us, just like you talked about with your book, that you walked away from it for a month and let something work and then came back. And I'm interested more to understand what that is and how to use it or let it use me or however I would say it. So again, like I said, I'm not sure what question to ask, but are there any teachers or resources or lessons or thoughts that you have about how to better understand or work with this kind of, or achieve, you know, effortless action or spontaneous right action or whatever? Just, there's a question in there somewhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I was thinking there's a lot of really good research on the power of rest and doing nothing. That we think our brain is thinking while we're thinking, but that's only the very top of the, the iceberg, it's the tip of the iceberg, that we're doing all kinds of processing in places that we can't grab it, which is why art and poetry and dance and music are so important because they get out of the thinking and they get to the to the to what's underneath. But for instance, if you have a choice between cramming up to a test or taking a nap, take a nap because the sleeping will take all of the stuff you've crammed into the front of your head and put it into long-term memory so you can access it in the test. If you're having trouble making a decision, walk away and trust that there's some underlying thing that's going on and you'll figure it out later. So that that would be my thing is always take every possibility of time to take a rest, to laze around, to not do anything, to just chill. And most people chill by going online and you're still thinking, you're still having input and you're not being with yourself. Just be, just be quiet.
1: Oh, thank you for that. And maybe that was the final. Yeah, the final thought. That's a really beautiful thought. But are there any final words or final thoughts that you'd like to leave listeners with?
0: I would say with emotions, the piece from chapter eight that my editor Haven had me pull out and put in the front of the book of Embracing Anxiety. I think it's good since we've already talked about it. So I want to read that. Emotions are at the center of everything you are every relationship, every dream, every failure, every triumph, every act of violence and every act of love. Your emotions are not just random sensations or meaningless moods. Your emotions are vital to your intelligence, your social skills, and your ability to understand yourself and the world around you. Each of your emotions has a specific purpose and each emotion brings you a unique set of gifts, skills, and genius. Your emotions are your guardians, your support system, and your friends. And you can learn how to work with all of them brilliantly.
1: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work,